The New Testament reading is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by, watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we give you thanks for all good gifts that you give. You are our creator. You have made us and this world and everything in it. You are our sustainer. 
You provide us with the very breath in our lungs. You provide us with all that we need for life and you've given every grace and every gift to your church to be the people you are calling us to be today. And you are our redeemer. You have brought us out of darkness and into light with you and you do that every single day. And so we ask now that you would do that again that you would meet us right where we are. As we come into this room, many of us are carrying anxieties. Some of us are weary. Some of us are excited about the holidays coming up. Some of us are dreading that. Some of us are excited about big things or are, have big plans. Some of us are on the up and up. Others, uh, it took every last bit of energy to get here this morning, hovering on the brink of despair. God, would you meet us exactly where we are? And would you speak your word of comfort, your word of life, your word of hope into our very being, that we might rise with you and go from here out into your world, renewed, strengthened, revived by your spirit. Be with us now and bless our time, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Paul writes to the Colossians, may you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Patient endurance and joyful gratitude. How do you bear up under the weight of suffering? How do you handle stress? What do you do? Where do you go when you feel like you are coming apart at the seams or you're being pulled in many different directions? What do you do when tragedy befalls you? When you get the diagnosis you were dreading or when you're looking at financial strain, when you're looking at relational brokenness, disappointment, Paul writes of patient endurance and joyful gratitude as he writes to a church that is well acquainted with suffering. And as we come and consider this text on Christ the King Day, the day where we remember that Jesus is on his heavenly throne and that God's promised kingdom is coming in and through him, no matter what it looks like in the here and now. I think this consideration of patient endurance and joyful gratitude is important. Because what Paul writes of here as he's writing to this church in Colossae, as he's writing to this church that's in this part of what we would call Western Turkey today, this part of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor that is experiencing real hardship in an era when Rome ruled with an iron fist and these early followers of Jesus were very uncertain about what following Jesus would end up looking like for them. Paul writes into their experiences of suffering and uncertainty with a word that he believes will buoy them to bear up with patience and joyful gratitude. And he writes of a hope that is neither the naive optimism that just can't really deal with the hard stuff of life, 
but also not with the cynicism or the despair that are so easily available when you are dealing honestly with the hard things of life. But he writes with a profound hope. And he writes about a kingdom. Notice that the hope of which he speaks is that he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved, is what it says in verse 13. For Paul, the hope of Christ is the hope of a kingdom. And it's the hope of a kingdom that is centered on a king. Now that takes work for us as 21st century Americans to really resonate with that or even maybe receive that as good news because we don't like kings. We, we live in a city that's famous for revolution, right? Overthrowing the king's reign here. But the kingdom of which Paul writes is not like the earthly kingdoms. And the audience to whom he's writing is living in the context of an earthly kingdom that is profoundly difficult, the Roman Empire. And this message that he writes is deeply subversive because he's writing of Jesus as Lord. He's writing of Jesus as one who rivals and indeed surpasses Caesar, which is not only a subversive message, but it's basically an illegal message in the context of Paul. And so he's writing to the church and he's portraying Jesus here as this king of a kingdom that is good, a king who is good, reigning over a kingdom that is good, not Caesar, who seeks to spread the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, to the ends of the earth by way of military conquest, right? A military might whose power was displayed by the cross, the crucified enemies of Caesar who were displayed to be viewed by all the people so that everyone knew who was really the boss. This is not that kingdom that Paul writes of. He writes of a different kingdom, a kingdom in which all the people thrive, a kingdom whose king is characterized by self-giving love. Indeed, ironically, even a king whose love is displayed by the same cross, that the power of Rome that sought to testify to itself with these displays of violence and power that that same symbol would be co-opted here. And it's the symbol of the crucified king that then becomes this emblem of a kingdom of peace. Because the message that Paul writes of is not simply of a crucified king, but of a crucified and risen king. One who endured the worst that Rome could dole out, yet who was raised by God who is bigger than Rome. And so the kingdom that Paul writes of is a kingdom that can actually endure Rome's worst. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken by the might of the mightiest military of the mightiest empire that the world had ever seen. And he says, when you can locate yourself inside of that kingdom, when you can identify yourself as belonging to that king, you can endure with patience and joyfully give thanks, even in the face of circumstances 
that are tragic, that are confusing, that are disillusioning. Knowing this king makes a difference. This poem that Paul goes into starting in verse 15, it doesn't look like a poem because of the way that our text is laid out here in block paragraph form, but it is. It's a carefully worded, beautifully written poem that I should have laid out differently so you could see it. It, it really, it's in like two halves. There's wonderful symmetry to it. It's beautiful. But it's riffing on this, the Hebrew word head. So this text is written in Greek, but it's, it's written as in this part of the world, um, the Hebrew scriptures of Israel had been translated into Greek. And so many of the Greek words are actually used to explore Hebrew words and concepts. And here the concept of head is being riffed on in this poem. And a head can mean all kinds of different things. Same, same kind of in our language too, right? A head can mean your anatomical head. It can mean like first place, like head of the class. It can mean the chief, like head honcho, right? It can mean source, like the head of the Mississippi River up in Minnesota. All those same kinds of meanings exist in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And here, Paul, whether he's the original writer of this little poem or whether he's borrowing it from somewhere else and putting it in his letter, doesn't matter as, as he's using it. It's scripture for us. But he's taking this poem, original to him or not, and he's inviting us to consider Jesus as supreme. Because he's, what he wants the Colossians, and by extension, I think what God wants us to know, is that this patient endurance and this joyful gratitude that can exist in all circumstances is a function of knowing Jesus as supreme, as head, as king. And so he gives us this portrait of Jesus to stand tall in our imaginations and in our hearts of this one who's the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, the one who's made all things, who's first place, who's chronologically first, who's by virtue of status first. He's the one who shows us who God is. He's the one who created and rescues the world. And he's the one who shows us what humanity looks like when lived out properly. This Jesus belongs at the center not only of our minds and of our religion and of our hearts, but he actually exists at the center of all things because he's the creator. And so Paul gives us this portrait of Jesus because he wants us, or he wants the Colossians and then all of his readers to understand that the real Jesus, the one who can give us the kind of hope that endures all things, the one who can enable us to actually endure all circumstances joyfully with gratitude, even in the midst of sorrow. The only one who can actually do that is the real Jesus. And the real Jesus is not domesticated little cute Jesus that we imagine that we try to like bring in at the edges of our lives to be an ornament on our otherwise unchanged existence. Jesus isn't there as some like self-help guru who might add a little value 
to our plan or to our goals, to our life. Jesus is at the center of all things and he invites us to join him in his project of making all things new. And this is the rub for us because we live profoundly individualistic, self-guided lives, right? We like to live as author and main character of our respective stories. And I write you into my story to the extent that you help out and I write you out of it to the extent that you're competing with where I want this thing to go, right? We live that way, we're individualists, we, we, we are American to the core. So we set goals and we embark on a journey of self-actualization, self-promotion, self-protection, self-preservation. Look out for number one. But the journey of faith, the journey of Jesus and those who would follow him is not that kind of journey. And the Jesus of reality is not the tiny one we try to make fit a little bit at the edges of our lives as an ornament, but he is the creator. He is the rescuer of all things. In fact, Paul tells us he's the image of the invisible God. Three things that we see about Jesus that are very important here. One is that he reveals God to us. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, God whom we cannot see is made known to us most supremely in and through this person, Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so if you wanna know what God is like, there's only one place to go. And it's not your imagination. It's not what we suppose. It's not what we project based on our experiences, good and bad. The one and only place to go if you want to know what the living God is like is Jesus himself. He is the one who shows us the Father. He is the one who lives out in human flesh, the very heart of God. He is God in person in our world. And that is profoundly good news because how does Jesus show up in the world? It's not as the worst that you imagine. It's not as the God you fear. It's not the angry judge. It's not the belligerent father, right? It's not the, the distant and disconnected and apathetic, um, you know, machine in the sky or whatever. It's not the cosmic vending machine who's there to support your agenda a little bit if you just put in enough cash. Jesus embodies the heart of God in our world in a way that shows us that God is at his very core, all about self-giving love. That God is so committed to his people and his world to make all things new, that God is willing to do all of the relational heavy lifting to stay involved with you, with me, with us, with this place. He's willing to take all of the burden to himself. He's willing to do all of the work. He's willing to bear with you through all things and allow all of the tragic consequences of all of the ways that you and I live against God, against one another, to let all of that fall upon him so that he can be the hurt locker in which that thing blows up. He takes it to himself. And as Paul says, he makes peace by the blood of his cross. It lands on him. That's who God is. 
If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you've seen this sacrificing Savior, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. You know the heart of God. That is a beautiful thing because Jesus is love in our midst. Jesus is truth in our midst. Jesus walked through this world with an intent to heal, with an intent to rescue, with an intent and a commitment to embrace. And the people he called together to follow him in the next generation and beyond is a unified people embodying together and practicing together the costly unity of what it looks like when we actually believe God has done all the work to bring us home to God and home to one another. Grace is enough. It's not grace plus you doing X, Y, and Z to fit in. It's no, God has actually put us together to be one, to receive from him the love and the freedom that he has purchased and earned through this cross of Christ for us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and what he images for us is beautiful and compelling. Secondly, we see Jesus as the creator and rescuer of the world. I mean, it's just incredible. The, the, this is lofty stuff, right? These are big picture kinds of words. All things, right, have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. I've spoken of my hiking out west from time to time, but I'm, I'm mindful of the difference between canyon country hiking and mountain hiking. I've alluded to this before in other places. Sometimes I, this is a good advent one, right? Where we, we imagine the panorama. But one thing about canyon country hiking is that you get the best view up front at the rim, and then you hike down into the details. When you hike a mountain, you have to earn the view right? The view comes at the end after you've sweated it out and dragged yourself up the hill. But when you hike a canyon, you stand at the rim at the very beginning of the trail and the whole panorama is there before you. You behold it at the very beginning and then you start to descend down into the details. Then the panorama begins to take on more precise detail. You begin to see the colors and the crags a little more specifically, but up front, you get to behold the whole. It's the exact opposite of mountain country hiking. Here is this moment where Paul brings us to the rim and he says, look, behold, take in the big picture of who this Jesus is. Soak it all in. And from there, we're gonna hike down into the details of what it means to live as followers of him. We'll keep going in the letter. We'll unpack that, but just know who it is that you're following. Gaze upon him and see that the one that we're talking about is the one who is at the center of all things. He's the creator and the rescuer of the world. Now, I don't know how much you like to enjoy nature. If you're one of those types that when the cherry blossoms start blooming, you like are always over in Fairmount Park and just can't get enough of it. Or if you're, if you're a hiker, I love to be outside. My kids love to be outside. And so there are moments when I'm dazzled by the beauty of this world, right? Maybe you know something of that, just the breathtaking awe of taking in something beautiful about the world. Knowing Jesus as creator baptizes all of those moments with this personal connection to the one who made it all, 
That it's not just a beautiful view. It's a beautiful view because Jesus did that. You're connected to him. And all of the beauty, whenever you find yourself wrapped with awe, whenever you find yourself overwhelmed with beauty and just amazed, whether it's some natural beauty or whether it's something precious in relationship or whether it's, you know, some moment in, in the in the expression of a child or whether it's music that's lifting us to different heights, the beauty of the world in which we live is what it is because Jesus has made this world beautiful. That's what Paul wants us to see, that it's his, all the things through him and for him. And at the same time, when you find yourself face to face with the broken realities of this world that is not only beautiful, but is also horrific. Jesus is the reason those things aren't going to be permanent. He is the one who rescues this place from the iron grip of suffering and death. Because he traveled that road, he went down to the belly of the grave and robbed it of all its power. He's that Jesus. He's not an ornament that hangs on the edge of your life. He's the one in whom all things hold together, including you and me. This is who we get to know through this incredible poem. And then lastly, I said I had three things, and there is a third. Jesus, he's not only the image of the invisible God, he's not only the creator and rescuer of the world, but he's also human being par excellence. What does it mean to be human? What does it look like to be human well in the world, to live not only as self-actualized or successful people, but to be alive, to be whole, or if we wanna borrow a biblical category, to image God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God created humanity in God's image to reflect the goodness and the character of God to the world. And here we see Jesus having walked this earth, having embodied this heart of God for the world, this self-sacrificial love of God for the world. And what he says to us is follow me, right? What Paul says to us as a follower of Jesus is imitate me as I imitate Christ. The way to be human is to be a copycat of Jesus who shows us in person what it looks like to rise to the occasion of our divinely given vocation to be human in the world to leverage all that we have, all of our gifts, all of our resources toward God's goal for the world in which God is making all things new. To use our agency in the world to get involved with God in what God is doing in the world. Because what God is doing in the world is good. It is permanent. He's making all things new. Jesus is the firstborn of that new world. He's the first fruits of that harvest. And by virtue of being joined to him, what that means is that the story of your life is forever attached to the story of his life. 
that where the story of your life is going is not to your retirement or even to your grave. Where the story of your life is going is to an everlasting world where life thrives forever, where injustice is no more, where sickness is no more, where death is no more, where we live forever in the world with God and with one another, united as this new humanity in a renewed world, to live with joy forever. That is the kingdom of which Paul speaks, that centers on the king of whom Paul writes. This king is Jesus, and the kingdom is the world that God has promised, and God keeps his promises. And that's what he has shown us in Christ. That's what he has given us a deposit of in his spirit. And now what he invites us into is to live eternal life now, not just waiting for heaven, but doing heaven here, to be heaven among us, to enact in the spirit the kind of life that characterizes the world set right, the world that God intends to bring to fullness. And so as we pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we also pray that prayer, not just with our lips, but with our lives as we seek to live toward God and one another, as those resurrected with Jesus, those made alive together with our King, those brought out of darkness and into light to be light, to abide in light and to shine, not to conquer the world like Rome, but to love the world like Jesus. That is what we do on Christ the King Sunday. We lift our eyes to see the King we take in the panorama of his glory and we let that vision of his kingship flood our imaginations and our hearts so that we might be remade, so that we might be resent out into the world as participants with him as he brings that kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we give you thanks and praise. You are our king. And I confess, it, I, I stammer and stumble to even say that because um, there's a bit of me that recoils against the idea of having a king. And that's probably true for many of us here. But we confess that we need you to be our king. We confess that your grace is what we need. And we ask that you would renew us, that you would enliven us by your presence, that you would stoke our imaginations to see this world through eyes of faith so that we might recognize that we are today actually living as citizens of your kingdom in this place. And that in light of that beautiful truth, we might live differently toward you, toward our neighbors, toward one another, as we find a hope in you that no other source can give. So would you liberate us from all of the false hopes to which we cling? Would you liberate us from all the dead-end roads that we travel so stridently to try to be okay? 
Would you deliver us from all of the ways that we try to detach ourselves from what you're doing in the world? And would you instead liberate us by your love and remind us that your love is for us and your love goes first and your grace is enough and that you are here for us and the kind of king you are is not the angry judge king, but the one who's made peace by the blood of his cross and has paved the way into life everlasting. Lead us, we pray, and remake us in your image through Christ our Lord.